Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. My guest today is Cal Newport, the author of the book, A World Without Email, Reimagining Work in an Age of Digital Overload. Cal is a professor of computer science at Georgetown, and he is the best-selling author of two excellent books on productivity and managing our time, Deep Work and Digital Minimalism. Now he has a new book out about moving beyond email altogether, which will be the topic of today's discussion. Cal is at the forefront of figuring out how knowledge workers can thrive and be productive in this crazy environment we find ourselves in, with our inboxes overloaded with email, with constant interruptions via text and instant messaging and social media. And he's also heavily influenced me and countless others on the need to carve out large blocks of uninterrupted time to focus on what he calls deep work. That's meaningful, important, strategic work that takes dedicated attention. One of the most important differentiating factors for our careers, I believe, is our ability to carve out this uninterrupted time and complete projects with long-term impact. And in this book and in this episode, he's going to talk about how to do just that. If you want to have a flourishing life, we want to start with a flourishing day, or even a flourishing hour. If we can keep stacking these flourishing hours and days and weeks up, we will build a flourishing life. And in this episode, Cal shares the tips and techniques to do just that. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Cal as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Cal Newport. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. Cal Newport, welcome to The Good Life. Well, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, good life is always something I'm looking for, so I'm glad I've uh, I finally found it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're in the right place. We're all about trying to figure out how to have a flourishing life, how to get more out of life. And uh, one big challenge in life today is how work gets done, and you address that in your book, which is going to be the topic of our discussion, A World Without Email, Reimagining Work in an Age of Communication Overload. And like I said, it's an exploration in how work gets done today and There's a lot of challenges. I know primarily we live in our inboxes and there's a lot of instant messages flying around. Some of us are using Slack and uh, you dive into what's wrong with the current state of affairs. I certainly can resonate with that because it doesn't feel right, often feels challenging and frazzled. And you also get into how we got to the state of where we are today and then what we might do to get to a better place and get to a world beyond email which I find really fascinating and appealing. So, so yeah, let's get into it. How did you come about to write this particular book? What book? What was the purpose and what were you trying to achieve? Uh, it's really a follow-up to a 2016 book I published. And in that book, I was talking about the value of undistracted works, so that when you can give something full concentration without distraction, without changing your context, that you could have better thoughts, you can produce better output. And that I felt that we weren't prioritizing undistracted concentration enough. One of the big pieces of feedback to that book was you don't realize how hard it is to do that. It, it, a lot of people were telling me, look, it's impossible between my inbox, between Slack, the amount of time I have to keep checking this makes it impossible for me to have even 
30 minutes here or an hour there of undistracted work. And so I had the follow-up question of, okay, why is that the case? Why do we work this way? Uh, where did it come from? Who thought it was a good idea? Should we stick with it or is there something better? That was the core question that led me down this rabbit hole. It ended up taking me five years to basically write this book. At some point, I put it on hold and wrote another book, came back to it because there were so many big, I felt like storylines that were took some careful excavation. Uh, but I finally pulled that all together and that became this book. And what let's get into some of those storylines because one of the things I found really fascinating about the current state of affairs and what some of your readers were complaining about when they said, look, Cal, this stuff is hard. Finding long periods of uninterrupted work is really challenging. I'm a writer. I try to carve out time to write. And in our world, it's difficult to do that. So what were some of the elements that led to where we are today? Obviously, email arrived in the early 90s. And that was a big part of it. But you kind of go back even a little further. So talk a little bit about what, what led to where we are. Well, I mean, it is instructive to look back at the world that email came into because when email was first innovated and first became widely available, this required some breakthroughs in office networking technology. Things like Ethernet, for example, really came together in the late 1980s. So being able to have a, a network within your office, this type of thing, this came together in the late 1980s. There's also some standards, sort of insider baseball, but some standards that allowed different networks at different companies to send messages back and forth to each other in a consistent way. These all came together in the 1980s. So email hit the scene right in the early 1990s in a big way. By 1995, roughly speaking, it had really widely spread, right? So it was sort of the killer app of the 1990s. It was a half billion dollar a year industry. And the reason it spread is because it had a proposition that was clear and unambiguously valuable. It said, you're using fax machines, you're using voicemail, you're sending memos. Like you're doing that right now. This is better. It's cheaper, it's more flexible, it's faster, right? So that's why email spread very fast. Uh, it's why we like email. So we wouldn't want that tool to go away because the fax machine was terrible. In its wake, and I think this is what's interesting, came in addition, a new way of collaborating. And that's where we have to put our focus. So in its wake came this new way of collaborating that I called the hyperactive hive mind that said, oh, by the way, now that we have this low friction digital communication tools, in addition to getting rid of our fax machine and our voicemail pins and those memo folders, we can now collaborate primarily with ad hoc back and forth unscheduled messages. Hey, what about this? Did you get that? Can you grab that? What happened to this? Can you, you remember what this was? What's going on with this client? We need to make a decision here. This new way of collaborating called the hyperactive hive mind required email to exist but email doesn't require it. And I think that is the key thing. So, so most of the issues I document with our current world of work communication are issues with the hyperactive hive mind workflow. And so I want to get that distinction real clear up front. Email made that possible, but email being around does not mean that it's inevitable. And so it's that new way of working that email brought with it that, that has actually become the real problem. Yeah. You make a point that no one really designed this. It emerged. It became the lowest common denominator. And and one of the reasons is it does allow us a lot of freedom. At any moment, I can fire off an email to you and say, hey, Cal, what's going on? And I expect you to answer. You could fire it back to me. So we have reduced the cost of friction to grab someone's attention. And that's that's a huge cost. But there is this sort of freedom of freewheeling and going about our knowledge work in a way that reduced some restrictions. And so you make this point that once the hive mind starts, it's really hard for any bee in the hive mind to pull itself out of the hive mind. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about those elements and why the frustration has developed? 
Well, this is the key observation. So once we recognize that it's this underlying way of organizing our work, the hyperactive high mind that's causing the trouble, we see why it's so hard to solve. Because if this is actually how our organization does things, then how can you unplug from it? If you unplug from it, things don't get done. You're not able to be useful. You're not able to be collaborative. This is the issue with trying to come at the email or the issue of email overload through the lens of personal habit or personal willpower failing or personal addiction. This doesn't work because when we come to the individual and say, you're so bad at using this tool, you check it all the time. You check it all the time because you're addicted to it and you should just check it less, you know, do your work and don't spend so much time on email. It completely misses the fact that, no, the reason why I have to check it is because I'm involved in three dozen different asynchronous back and forth conversations that are critical to my job. There's a ping pong ball coming back over the net on each of these virtual games that I have to hit back pretty quickly because if it's going to take seven back and forth messages with this colleague to figure out a response to the client and we have to get back to the client tonight, I now have to check my email enough that I can hit that ball back across the net four or five times. The excessive inbox checking behavior is necessitated by the hive mind. And that's why I think we've really had trouble is because we've tried to up to now see that as a failing of the individual, as if work was somehow separate from what was happening in the inbox. Like, well, why are you spending so much time over there? Don't be so weak. Spend more time on your work. Where the reality is the work demands that you have to keep checking it. And so we, once we recognize that, we recognize that the solution here, any solution here, is going to get not at the inbox level, but is going to take place down at the level of the underlying workflow. We're going to have to blow up the hive mind and then do the hard work of saying, okay, if we're not going to organize that way with just, I'll grab you when I need you, how are we going to coordinate instead? And that's a hard question. We're going to have to do hard work to answer it. Well, you bring up this guru of management consulting and being a management consultant, I, I admire Peter Drucker. You bring up Peter Drucker as someone who had a lot of foresight into knowledge work. In fact, he coined the term knowledge worker. And one of the elements that he defined for the knowledge worker, he said, the knowledge worker is going to require autonomous working. They're going to need freedom because what we do requires some creativity, requires some of that deep work that you're talking about. So he suggests that we need to be autonomous. We're not going to do well if we're micromanaged. Well, yeah, Drucker is really at the center of a lot of this. I mean, in, in addition to being a guru of management consulting, he basically invented the whole idea that management was something you could study. So the whole idea that management was something that there was theory around you could study and do better, that you could think through formally how you run an organization, this all goes back to Drucker. So he is the guy in helping us understand how the world of business works in the 20th century. He got his start doing observations, wrote a book about GM. So he got his start really in the industrial sector. And then the 1950s, he coined the word knowledge work. He was had a lot of foresight, like you mentioned, saw that the US economy in particular was going to shift increasingly away from manufacturing towards cognitive output. That's what he called knowledge work. So he was the one who really was going to help us understand how should knowledge work function. And he had a really clear idea, which has a lot of merit to it, which is he said, what we do in the industrial sector, what allowed us to be so productive in the industrial sector is not going to directly port to knowledge work. Because in the industrial sector, the big story of the last 50 years had been de-skilling that actually the most efficient way from a profit perspective to build something was to have a very small number of managers who are smart and figured out, okay, how do we want to build this widget? What's the best way to do it? Hire one really smart person to figure that out. Then break that down into step by step by step into, into very small, easy to replicate steps, and then hire the cheapest possible workers to implement each of those steps sort of automatically, right? They, they crunch the numbers like, okay, that's cheaper than having a craftsman that 
that hiring a bunch of craftsmen to each have a lot of skill to build something, right? And Drucker was rightly so pointing out that's not going to work in cognitive work. Uh, the stuff that people is doing, the the ad copywriter, the R and D scientist, like the stuff that they are doing is too complicated to break down in some step-by-step process. In fact, they often know more about it than their managers. Now in knowledge work, you're often a manager of people who know more about what they're doing than you do. So there's no way that we can do this thing where we have assembly lines, right? We're not going to break down Mad Men style ad campaign design into an assembly line where anyone can come in and do the steps. And so he was trying to make that point. And he introduced an alternative he called management by objectives, which of course is now incredibly influential and give them objectives, but leave it up to the knowledge worker to figure out how they actually get their own work done. The issue, and this is the key distinction I make, is that that call to autonomy was taken too far. And so while it's true that we really shouldn't tell a knowledge worker how to execute their work, we extended that autonomy to how this work is organized. We extended the individual autonomy to questions about how do we figure out what needs to be done, who's going to do it, where the information is, and how they're going to work together to get it done. We said, well, that is also up to the worker. We just give them objectives. You know, here's our objective, you know, figure out how to do it. Uh, this can't just be left up to the individual worker. If we make all productivity personal, we're going to get stuck in the lowest common denominator way of coordinating, and that's the hyperactive hive mind. So we're stuck in this let's just rock and roll with emails and Slack back and forth all day. It's the easiest, most flexible, most convenient way of working. We're stuck there because if it's individuals making their own decisions about how they work, no one individual can change that system. And so we've been stuck in this really ineffective way of working longer than we probably should have if we look at other business cycles because of Drucker's accidental autonomy trap. Yeah. So what you're saying there is that the execution of the work absolutely is up to the knowledge worker doesn't need to be micromanaged. The knowledge worker is going to design and figure out how to get that work done. But when it comes to coordinating with other, other knowledge workers, thinking about the process of an ad campaign, the process of developing software, the process of whatever it is, the knowledge work that we're developing, that requires larger design, some thought, it, and it can't be up to every individual to create it ad hoc because then we're going to end up where we are today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. it's going to be hard to get out of the hive mind. And to look at an alternative, consider software development, as it's a field that has escaped the hive mind. You don't go to a software development firm and see a bunch of programmers come in and they uh, the manager walks up and says, okay, our objective is we want to finish this program version by next month. I don't want to tell you how to do that. Just like go to work to start coding. No, no. They walk in and they say, great, here's our scrum board. We've, we've identified exactly the features that need to be done. We know exactly what their status is. Everything is in a different column. We have a standing meeting that's 15 minutes long where we move this card over to the executing column. This is all you're working on. No distraction. You're doing one thing today. There's a huge amount of thought at the organizational level that goes into how we organize the work of doing software development. But in almost any other type of office work, we just come into the office, fire up the inbox, fire up Zoom, and we just sort of rock and roll. Yeah. You make a great analogy in the book, going back to in automobile manufacturing, going back to the early 1900s, where in the manufacturing process, each automobile was built in sort of a craft methodology, which is sort of like what you just described in the knowledge worker. We just fire up our email. We fire up all of our messaging systems and say, okay, I'm going to start going through the day and crafting each of the little projects I'm working on. Henry Ford was in that environment and somehow went from that to the automobile manufacturing line, assembly line. And that was a huge step, but it was really hard to do. And it just, it sort of changed America. 
it sounds like what you're suggesting is we need something like that in knowledge work. Can you can you make that connection and kind of help fill that story out? Because I thought that was great. Because when we when we talk about a knowledge work, okay, this hive mind's really easy, but it has these real issues. And by the way, let me just very quickly parenthetically uh, underscore the issues with the hive mind because we, we've talked about it. it is natural, it is flexible, it is easy. Mm-hmm. It's also very natural. It's how we normally coordinate with people. The huge problem, this is the problem we're trying to solve, is that scale. Right. If I was just working with one other person on one objective, it wouldn't be that bad of an idea for us to have like a Slack channel open. That's like if you were in the same room, we would just go back and forth and talk. And so that's fine. We could do it on a Slack channel or email. It's not a bad way to work. The issue is scale. In most offices, you have a couple dozen colleagues, you have vendors, you have clients. And so now what you have is dozens and dozens of different interactions about different types of things going on. It doesn't scale because each of these interactions is generating messages that you have to respond to. You have to respond to kind of timely because it's going to be a bunch of back and forth to get things done. You don't want to slow it down too much. The result is you have to check these channels all the time. So that's the ultimate, just to, to set that up before we get back to forward, is this is the ultimate cost of the hive mind is that it requires that you check channels all the time. Why is that a problem? Because our mind can't context shift that quickly. So when you have to check an inbox once every six minutes, which is an actual number from an actual big study I talk about in the book, what you're doing is continually shifting your attention from your main thing to the channel that begins a attention switch. But then before that attention switch can finish, because it might take 10 or 15 minutes to really fully do, you wrench your attention back to the original thing. And so now you stop that attention switch and try to switch back to where you were. All of this completely clouds up our mind. And it's why we feel so fatigued and anxious and overwhelmed when we're checking our email all day. Our brain can't do that. Right. So, so that, that's why we have the problem. Right. So then when I say let's replace the hive mind with other things, a common response is, yeah, but the other things sound hard. Like it might be inconvenient. Like what if we miss something? Like I, what if I really needed you and you have some other process in place and, and, and I couldn't talk to you that day, like bad stuff could happen. It seems, and it's also gonna be hard to get right. And, and so why don't we stick with the simple thing? I say, well, look at Ford. The assembly line was a massive pain. A massive pain compared to the craft method. The craft method was incredibly intuitive and natural. Here's a chassis. It's on sawhorses. Here's three craftsmen. They sit there at the sawhorses and and fit all the pieces to it and build a car. And if you want to scale up, you have a bunch of sawhorses and a bunch of craftsmen, right? Like it was the industrial equivalent of the hyperactive hive mind, the natural, flexible, easy way to do things. The assembly line was so much more complicated. They had to spend a huge amount more money. They had to hire more managers. And it was really hard to get right. Because if you didn't have everything working just right, the whole thing would come to a halt. So it must have been incredibly frustrating, right? If you were working there at the time, you'd be like, this is such a pain. Can't we just build a stupid car right here? But the assembly line changed the man hours required to produce a Model T from 12 hours to 90 minutes. Made Ford the largest company in the world, and it made uh, Henry Ford for a while the richest man in the world. So this notion of convenience is what we're trying to optimize for. doesn't really make sense in the context of business. Effectiveness is what we're trying to optimize for. And so the alternatives to the hive mind, there are a myriad. It depends what type of work we're talking about and, and what we're trying to do here. So it's not like one solution. Yeah, they're less convenient. Yeah, they could be a pain to get right. But so is almost anything in business that's ended up to, to be really effective. That, that is the convenience is not the right metric. So I, I like to tell that story for exactly that point is sometimes doing something that's harder, more expensive, requires more overhead, is more complicated and, and creates many, many bad things happening in the short term is absolutely the right thing to do in the long term. Yeah, and I also found it inspiring because you mentioned there's a spirit or an ethos in the air around the early 1900s to be bold, to try different things, to break out of the craft method because 
Henry Ford was trying to drive their costs down. He wanted to bring cars to the masses. He wanted to solve big problems. And you point out that we don't often see that with breaking through the hive mind today. There just seems to be a complacency of, well, that's the way that work happens today. And we're all sort of stuck in it. We can't, it's hard for any individual to break out. So it's a definitely an inspiring story. And then you back that up with some other inspiring stories of people in our day and age that have been breaking through. And I found those really interesting too. It's possible. Yeah, it is possible. Once you realize the problem is the hive mind, then you know what to focus on, which is, oh, we need alternative rules. We need alternative guidelines. We need alternative systems for how we collaborate. They're really clear and they should not be the hive mind. And in particular, what you want to optimize for is less unscheduled messages. Unscheduled messages is what requires you to check your inbox all the time. If part of how work is going to get done is a message could arrive at any point that is going to need a relatively prompt answer when it does arrive, that is poison to productivity. Now I have to constantly context shift to keep checking Slack, to keep checking my inbox because uh, that's how this work is going to happen. So we, we want to build alternatives to get away from that. Uh, so yeah, I go through I go through case studies in the books of these sort of mini Henry Ford type examples. Uh, one one type example I talk about is a marketing firm run by a gentleman named Devish. I actually talked to him recently, did an interview with him for uh, the book. He interviewed me about uh, about my book. I had originally interviewed him for the book, so it was sort of an interesting circular type thing. But they ran a marketing firm, about a dozen people, and uh, they're very much in the hive mind. So it was email all the time. Email was their poison. And it was stressing them out. And it was also felt really inefficient because he's like, I'm always in this inbox. We have a bunch of different clients and I'm talking about all the different clients at the same time, trying to find information about this client while seeing all these messages about another. Uh, what he did is he moved everything to Trello. And he said, we're going to have a different Trello board for every client. And all the information for each client is going to live on its board. And now everything relevant to that client is there, including like any notes from calls we've had, there, there's a column for sort of research where those where those notes can go, any contracts, any background material. Okay, here's the report that we produced from the market research we were doing for the client. Everything's there. You're not searching for it. It's right there. The work that needs to get done at some point, everything has its own card. The work that's being done right now has its own card. You can see exactly what's being done now and who's working on it, right? Like it's all organized there. It's all crystal clear. And the way that like Davish talked about their day unfolding now is you're like, okay, I'm going to work on this client. You go into that Trello board and all you're seeing is information about that client. All you're thinking about is that client. You're you're working on things in the to-do board. You're updating this board. And then when you're done, you say, okay, I'll shut that down and now move on to another client. And it's you're, you're in the context of each client. You're not doing a thousand other types of communication. And the amount of email overall in this firm has really plummeted because most of the stuff happens on here. And then they have these meetings, these, you know, okay, we have set meetings to talk about each client, which is largely where that board got updated and decisions were made. And now there's no emails going back and forth. The information's there. We have these quick coordination meetings. Everyone knows what they're working on. And the relief you feel when you talk to Devish is really palpable because it used to be all I do is my inbox. And now it's like, I work on this for a while that I'm done. I work on this for a while that I'm done. It just feels much more much more sane, much more effective. Yeah, there, there's so many interesting and beneficial aspects of that kind of work. And one of them you mentioned the book is spatial because we we think and optimize our memory around how things are organized spatially. And when I'm in my inbox and there's one message from one client, another message from another client, a message from a vendor, it's very scattering for your brain and for the context switching. But if it's all in one place, it optimizes for the way our brain works. 
Trello is the is the tool there. And you mentioned it, it comes up several times in the book. Is that something, do you see that as being a tool that's going to be more popular in the future? Or do you think that they're onto something there? Yeah, there's a lot of uh, similar alternatives. Like what these tools in general do, I call them task boards. It, it gives you a virtual board. You have virtual cards and you have columns. And you can put cards on columns. And then the backs of the cards, you can attach files and have discussions and comments or, or this or that. Uh, Trello is an easy entry-level tool there. Uh, there's a product called Flow that does something similar. Flow has pretty good features for assigning cards to individuals where you see their picture, like in a little circle in the corner. Uh, Asana is a tool that comes out of software development that's a little bit more geeky and fully featured. So there, there's a lot of different alternatives that do this, but what they all share is that they make the work being done on a particular project completely transparent. Here's all the stuff that's happening. Here's all the information associated with it. Here's all of its statuses. Here's who's working on what, all in one view. I think that general idea is brilliant. Or the other way to think about it is it's commonsensical and what we're doing instead, which is like, well, why don't we just have 12 conversations about each of these clients all happening at once and we'll have them all interleave into an undifferentiated inbox. Like alternatively, we could just say, oh, well, that's just really stupid, <laughs> right? So I don't know if this is brilliant or that what we're already doing is really stupid, but there's a huge gap between the two. Yeah, and the other thing that Davish is doing there is he or someone at his firm has really thought about the process because yeah. what's on those cards there's going to be steps or individual tasks that need to be completed in order for the overall objective to be met. And spending some time thinking about that process, this is something you encourage us to do in the book, spend some time thinking about the process and design it, define it, even think about the process of improving the process. We could all, I think, benefit from thinking about our work as more process. And we often don't because as knowledge workers, we sort of haven't been trained to do that it's the whole game, right? That's the whole game here is we have to start thinking about our work like processes, just like they figured out in the industrial sector. Here are the things we do on a repeated basis. What is our rules or systems or guidelines for how we actually do this? And we have to think it through. And those rules or guidelines or systems have to include, here is how we actually communicate back and forth information we need or come together and communicate and make decisions that should all be spelled out. It should not just be left up to, we'll just figure it out on the fly. If you haven't gone through this thinking for a process that shows up again and again in your business, then the default is almost certainly the hyperactive hive mind. And I think we have to just confront that. We should write it all down. Like, okay, we're doing the hive mind for all of these. Is that the best way of doing it? Because the answer is almost always no. So, you know, in an in industrial sector, this is called process reengineering. It's at the core of all the growth in the, the industrial sector of the economy, which has been phenomenal from, let's say, 1900 to today. It's been so large, it's it's almost astronomical. It's hard to imagine how much more productive industrial work is today than it was then. It's because they have had a mindset since the early 20th century of like, we can keep asking, is there a better way to do this? We don't ask that question today because of Drucker's autonomy trap, but we should. And that's the whole shape of my solution. So when people say like, oh, what tool should we use instead? What habit should I use instead? I say, none of that makes any sense to me. The only thing I care about is how are you implementing your processes? If it's the hive mind, that's probably not the best way. Come up with a better way. How are these tasks and they're assigned? How do you coordinate? How do you communicate? How's the information move? Where are the decisions made? You have to think this stuff through. And when you're thinking this stuff through, the thing that you're trying to avoid is unscheduled messages because unscheduled messages create context shifts context shifts or productivity poison. So when you know what you're trying to minimize, then you can go in and start coming up with some pretty interesting, natural, innovative, flexible, sometimes off the wall, sometimes really common sense type 
implementations of each of these different processes. Maybe we can get into another example of how this works, uh, because I think the suggestion here is we're going to have to figure out what works best for our line of work. There's not going to be a cookie cutter protocol or process for each type of knowledge work, whether you're a writer or a software developer or you are a human resource manager or marketing manager, whatever it is, finance, you've got to define your processes. So maybe if we could give our listeners just a few other examples of where this is working well and, and what the, what people have done to break through. Yeah. Well, I mean, my examples really fall into three big categories. So, I mean, the first category are things you do that are sort of simple tasks that there is a, a tool that can actually just do the task better, right? So that's the easiest case. The, the, the classic example here is meeting scheduling. If your work requires a lot of meetings to be set up with you or with clients or whatever, right? Like maybe you're a financial advisor and so you, you have to constantly set up meetings with clients, whatever it is implementing that process with a scheduling tool like Calendly or X.ai or Schedule Once versus just we'll go back and forth on email and figure it out is a simple thing to do, but a huge win. We really underestimate the cost of trying to set up meetings with back and forth messages because let's think about it. There may be five or 10 back and forth messages to find a time that works. Because we're trying to get this set up quick, I'm going to have to check my inbox five to 10 times for each of these messages because I want to be able to bounce back a response pretty quickly. If I wait till the end of the day, now it's going to take us five days to schedule the meeting. Okay, so now something as simple as trying to set up a time to meet with a client can generate 25 to 50 additional inbox checks, each of which creates a context shift and reduces your cognitive capacity for at least 10 or 15 minutes. You've just created a massive amount of drag by in the moment making the simple decision of like, well, just when do you want to meet question mark, right? So that's that's a, an example of a process we can solve with a, a custom built tool. Great. I use Calendly done. Some types of processes are what I call automatable. So that means it's the same steps again and again every time. You know, and, and so one of the examples in the book, for example, was a media company that they produce these daily videos that the, the founder of the company it's him giving a piece of advice and, and they have to be edited in a script and they have to go to multiple platforms. It's the same thing every time. So they figured out, okay, what is our pipeline here that allows these videos to get conceived, filmed, edited, made, and posted to all the platforms without anyone ever having to send a message, an unscheduled message to anyone else. And so they built an automated process where they have a shared spreadsheet. The video ideas go into the spreadsheet. Information gets added there. There's a cell. It's like, okay, this is ready to film, has been filmed. You know, the, the, the raw footage is in the shared Dropbox file. And the different people involved just use this spreadsheet as their core coordination tool. And like, okay, now there's film ready to edit. The editor see that, they edit the film, they move it to a different thing, they update the spreadsheet, the script writer comes in, whatever, right? But they've, they've built an automated process so that these videos can get produced and posted with no unscheduled messaging. But then the third category is sort of like we talked about with Davish, where you have to create these project ecosystems. So, you know, hey, we have some sort of project we all have to work together on. It's not automatable. You know, it's not the same thing every time. And here it's, okay, we're going to have some sort of place to keep track of who's doing what. We have some sort of agree in advance on how we're going to get together and update who's working on what and how's it going. So there might be some sort of regular quick status meeting, some sort of tool to keep track of the tools, uh, some sort of shared document over here with the status, you know, whatever it is, Right. That's another class. So th these are kind of the three major classes of processes and the three major types of solutions we see when we get rid of the uh, the hive mind in each of these cases. Yeah, it's great to think about them in three different ways. And we can all think about our own work in these categories. The very first one reminds me of a little incident that came up 
in the last year in my work. I started using Calendly and I have a colleague that I schedule a lot of meetings with and is in a similar line of work. And we schedule a lot of client meetings and there's before COVID, there was a lot of travel to us. So our schedules, they were challenging. And I suggested Calendly. I started using it. I was talking to my colleague and his resistance to Calendly was he wanted the freedom to you know, schedule something wherever he wanted and to know the nuance of any given day, what was happening. And that's the resistance I often hear for some of these tools. But I found if I put the work in up front and really thought about on any given day into my future, I'd have to sort of think about when I want to have calls. And if I just spend a half an hour and going two weeks out, carve those times out, that it was a huge win. But that's the resistance you often hear is that I don't want to, I just want the freedom. I want to be able to do what I want when I want, which is sort of that common denominator of the hive mind. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Like Calendly has two types of friction or schedule tools in general. The one you're talking about, which is which is control over, I know that uh, this type of meeting I don't want to do in the afternoon. But if Calendly just has all my open times, uh, which is which is a common one, but you're, you are absolutely right that often the solution is a little bit more work. Like, well, maybe I need to break up my slots in the different types for a different type of work and really think in advance, when do I want to do these type of meetings? And and then that that thinking is being done up front. Also, I think people found out with Calendly that you can just put informal guides on the request. Like, yeah, here's all my time. You can grab a, a slot from Calendly. Let's try to do this on like a Tuesday or Thursday morning. So see if you can grab a Tuesday, Thursday morning slot or something, right? Like you can actually just add a little guidance when you send the, and that turns out the work, uh, that turns out the work really well. The other issue with Calendly is the social dynamics, but hey, it's a challenge that can be overcome. I mean, often with just the right twist. So a lot of people are worried I can't send a Calendly link to someone who's at a status above me, like my boss, right? Because it sounds like I'm trying to make their life harder so that my life is easier. That tends to be really solvable if you just put the right social dynamic twist. Like, you know, I know you're busier than me. So what I've done is just listed all of my available times on this link here so that you can you can find one that really works for your schedule because it's probably gonna be harder for you to find something than for me, right? And then people are like, oh, great. You've gone out of your way to make my life easier. So sometimes social dynamics matter but they're often uh, with the right twist are, are easily handleable. Yeah. And those are really important. In fact, you spend some time talking about in the book, how to implement some of these changes because change is hard. And anytime we try to make a change like this, it impacts those around us, our colleagues, people that we work with inside and outside the company. And you have a suggestion that it might be better to try some of this stuff under the radar before you go out there and try to tell people that you're you know, changing their world because people don't like to be part of change where they don't have control over. And I thought that was really good advice. Yeah. Well, it's classic motivational psychology, right? So if I feel like there's a change happening that I didn't have a say in that is going to make my life harder, that's very distressing. I don't like external forces coming in without my say and making my life harder. So, so how does this reflect when we actually want to, let's say, put in place alternatives to the hive mind? Well, there's two scenarios here. One is if you're just making changes to your own system, which is a great way to get used to this, by the way, that if you just look at, here's the processes I'm involved in as an individual. Now, here's the thing I do for work all the time. If you just say, how can I improve these to minimize or reduce unscheduled messages, even if I can't control what anyone else does? So just looking at the things I can kind of control, 
you can usually get a really big win. You can really bring down the unscheduled messages in your inbox. But when you do that work, probably just don't tell people. And I think that's just basic motivational psychology. If someone if someone gets upset about something, you can explain it, but don't don't tell people who didn't realize that they had a reason to be upset with you. Don't give them a reason to be upset with you. So don't don't put up an autoresponder. Don't post chapters from my book. Don't have like a big preachy explanation about the way we're doing this doesn't work. And therefore I can't be reached. My meetings are only just, you know, just do it. This is when, you know, the meetings you make available, the fact that it's only on Tuesday, Thursday mornings, you don't really explain it. That's just what it is. And that's when people schedule the meetings, like that you you say no to some projects because you have some quota. You don't have to get into it. You just say no, right? That People aren't getting emails back from you. You don't have to explain why. It's just you have your own uh, you have your own system. Sometimes you can bring people into systems. You just don't tell them that's what you're doing. You're like, oh, great. we got to get this done. Here's what I suggest. Uh, I'll put a draft in the Dropbox by noon on Monday, and then you have it all day. I won't touch it again until Tuesday morning. Then I'll pick it up and blah, blah, blah. You're really bringing them into a system without calling it that. The second place this shows up is, okay, the next level that you want to implement these things is at the team level. All right. We're a team that works on the same things again and again within this organization. That's probably the appropriate organizational level to do these changes. I don't advocate, for example, a really top-down overhaul where a, like a COO says, this is the way that everyone in our company of 1,000 is going to do their work now. It's, it's not flexible enough. There's not enough on-the-ground intelligence that's going to be kind of bureaucratic. That probably won't work. The team level is the right level. But again, because of the psychology, how do you come up with new processes as a team? Everyone has to be involved. Right? Because if it feels as if I'm the team lead telling you that don't email, we're not going to email each other anymore, we're going to be on Trello, I'm going to feel like I have no locus of control here. It's extrinsic. Someone's changing my life. It could make my life harder. I had no say in it. But if it's, let's work as a team, how do we want to collaborate on this thing? And, and, and we've all read Cal Newport, and we all know that context switching is bad. Uh, it's much more likely to stick. So yeah, uh, you really want to avoid in all these scales, making it seem like you are imposing on someone else a system that might make their life harder. And those systems that you're talking about, when you gather your team together and attempt to redefine how you work, you call that the protocols, the protocols of how you coordinate work. And you've got something called the protocol principle. Um, can, can you talk about that and how we, can, how we might approach our protocols in a way to sort of optimize how we work and how we feel, how we, how we psychologically mm-hmm. feel at the end of the day? Yeah. So like a few principles here is a, what are you trying to optimize? Which again is non-trivial. Like if you're building a car, you're trying to optimize time. Like how quickly can we build a car? But when it comes to knowledge work processes, you really are trying to minimize context shifts because that's what really kills the brain's effectiveness and makes people miserable. And the best proxies I keep coming back to the best proxy for context shifts is unscheduled messages. So you say, okay, we have to produce these client reports on a regular basis. Let's come up with our, our rules and our systems and our guidelines. And, and our goal here in doing this exercise is to reduce the number of unscheduled messages that are going to be sent as part of getting this work done. All right, so we have the right objective. Whatever you come up with should be clear and recorded. Okay, here it is. We all agree. We write it down. We have some shared documents somewhere. So we all see, you know, here, how, here is how it's going to work. It should be tentative. Let's try this for this amount of time. And then we'll check back and see what's working or not. We'll tweak it. Maybe we have to throw the whole thing out. And finally, you really want to get buy-in, have an escape valve. Here's what we do if something really goes wrong and the system can't handle it. Like we have some system where we meet once a week and something happens one hour after that meeting and it's urgent and we can't wait till the next week to get it done. People are really worried about these occasional bad things happening. 
So put in an escape valve. Okay, here's what happens in that case, a way to get people's attention and, and make sure that nothing too bad happens. Just make sure that escape valve has sufficient friction. So for example, if that escape valve is text me, you're going to start getting texted on stuff that really could have stayed in the system. If the escape valve is call me, all right, now you're probably not going to get a call unless it's really urgent. It will, it will basically never happen. But put those things together is really the key to evolving these new ways of working in a team that actually stick. And in the end, they work and everyone's on board for, with it. Yeah. And that last one's really important because whenever you go to redesign something like this, it's often a low probability outlier that someone brings up to say, well, that's not going to work in that case. And it sort of puts a wrench in the whole process and then it doesn't end up getting implemented. And so that's a great way to address the reluctance you often hear from change or from people that are trying to, you know, trying to get them to move in a new direction with a new system or protocol. Another area you talk about specialization. We, we want to work on the stuff that we're good at. We want to really leverage what each of those of us on the team are good at. And so thinking about specialization as you go into that design and protocol, I think it's important too. Well, we do too much. And I think this is an issue with knowledge work. We do too much. We have too much on our plate and too many different types of things on our plate because we have very few controls in a hyperactive hive mind style workflow. We have very few controls on how you assign work or how much work people should be doing. And so it becomes a free-for-all. Everyone trying to grab time and attention from everyone else for their own convenience and all their time and attention is being grabbed. So you try to grab other people's to try to offset it. And it really spirals out of control. So I think the average knowledge worker today is doing too much. And it's a problem in part because it's very hard to get really good processes in place that avoids the hive mind when you have too many things to do. So once you get past a certain level of just overload, there's just not enough time to figure out how to do these things well, you have no other option but to fall back on the high fine. And then two, it's just exhausting and not a great use of attention capital, right? If we're, if we're split between a lot of things, we can't do any of them that well. So I think it's a real issue. And I think the solution is we should all probably be doing a lot less. And, and the way we do a lot less is we're going to have to get a little bit more specific about, well, how much do we want people to be doing? And we got to be really clear then about how much they are doing so we can compare these two things together. And we obfuscate that often in the hyperactive hive mind because the work exist informally spread over dozens of informal requests and emails and crowded inboxes all around our organization, right? So I don't know, you asked me about this, someone emailed me about this, someone put a Zoom meeting on the calendar over here. It's, it's not really clear who's working on what or how much they're doing. And there's nothing stopping me from adding that one more thing to your plate. So I'm, I'm a real advocate that we should do more specialization. So people should work on less, but have more accountability for what they do. You do less, you can have clear processes from what you do too that maybe protects you from having to be on email all the time, but you got to do a good job. I also think we need probably more separation of administrative work from the direct value production work. To make this work, you need to have more support specialists to try to allow the direct value producing specialist within the organizations to mainly just do that. This is just economic theory. You're going to get a much better overall production. I think we often shoot ourselves in the foot thinking we can reduce support specialist because yeah, tech allows everyone to kind of just do these things on their own. You don't need a typist. You can, you have a word processor and, and we don't need a travel department. We have a website that you can go in and, and type in the information, but it doesn't take into account the scarcity of actual attention capital. And so I think we probably need to separate these roles, administrative support roles, very heavily supporting the value production roles to value production roles are then much more specialized on a fewer number of things, really clear standards about how much work you should be doing, how we measure that, we can see it clearly, we, we stick with it. 
um, but probably more accountability that goes along with that. Okay, you're just doing this two stuff for us and you do it really well, but if you don't do it really well, we're going to notice. That's probably the future we need to get to if we want to be a little bit more optimal about how we actually get this type of work done. Well, you mentioned briefly in the book that you hired a virtual assistant, I think through Upwork as a support specialist to take things I'm assuming off your plate and so you could focus more on what you do best. How did that work? Did that, was that challenging? Did you have to do a lot of work up front to get that person up to, to speed? Because that's a step I haven't taken. I'm sort of like my friend uh, that was mentioning earlier, but on the other side of the uh, argument here, thinking, I think I can just do this stuff more efficiently on my own. But the more, as I'm reading your book and thinking about my own work and how I get work done, there are a lot of things I'm doing that someone else could do, but it's going to take some time to offload it. Yeah, it does take time. It, it takes time to figure this out. And often the, the best solution, this is what I found, this is why I no longer work with that, a general purpose VA, is that often the best solution is just to take the stuff off your plate in the first place. In other words, like instead of having a VA that answers your emails, figure out how can I drastically reduce how many emails I have to answer. Like that's often, that's often the answer. But I, I, I would say in, in my life as a writer and sort of the business that surrounds writing, there's a lot of people I work with for special purpose functions. You know, like, I don't want to deal with this about my podcast. I don't want to deal with this about my website. I don't want to deal anything that I think is not really taking advantage of the skills I've honed and the direct value production I can do. I don't really want to be spending too much time on it. So I, I have that mindset. And the two things you can do to service that mindset is take things off your plate, which I do very aggressively. Uh, like I make, it's, it's harder to reach me via email. So I just don't have as many emails to, to be answered and then work with specialists on the things that need to be done. I have very clear processes with my publicist for working on working on book tour scheduling. I have a web person that's on retainer that just anything with the website, that's what they're here and that's what they deal with. There's various people involved with the podcast production. And, and it's all about, I would rather use more of my attention on the things to produce the most value. And But you are absolutely right. It's, I mean, all this stuff is a pain. All this stuff is a pain. It takes buy-in, it takes some work. It's hard to get right. Uh, but that's the thing that comes up often in the book is like upfront pain is often what is necessary to get long-term really good efficiency. And and that that over time adds up to huge, huge wins if you're willing to go through the pain upfront. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to that Henry Ford example and another one that you bring up about the Pullman car company and some of the work that these early industrial companies did, they went through a lot of pain. They solved a lot of problems, but then when they got it going, it reached to scale and the incredible efficiencies that they were able to achieve is, I mean, 10X in some cases. And and I think Drucker did say something like, this is the next revolution. Yeah. He used this 50X number, which I think is really important, right? He said in 1999, he said this, the industrial sector grew 50X between 1900 and 1999. And that that is such an astronomical number that it basically generated all of the wealth on which the modern developed world was built, right? Like that growth was so big. It's the, what grew the economy to the point that this is the world we know today was built on that. And he said in the same article right now in 1999, knowledge work is where the industrial sector was in 1900. Why have we not done that growth yet? Because what the industrial sector did is they really cared about productivity and asked, how do we do this better? How do we do this better? And he was really trying to sound the alarm uh, we're not doing this in knowledge work right now. We don't think enough about knowledge work productivity, and we really don't. And and this might sound crazy at first, like, well, we talk about this. Well, what do we actually talk about? Well, from an organizational perspective, we'll throw software at the at the problem. But mainly what we're trying to do with software is take the way we're working and make 
various steps of it faster or lower friction. Send email faster, make it quicker to get information, but just making how you work faster is not a productivity revolution. This is what Henry Ford tried at first. He tried to make the craft method faster by doing things like, let me get the parts closer to the sawhorses. What if we put the parts in the ceiling and we dropped them down slides so you didn't have to walk over here? That's just the, the industrial equivalent of autocomplete in your email. Like, let's make it quicker to send emails. It doesn't change fundamentally how we work. He's like, we have to change fundamentally how we have to change fundamentally how we work. And then we have this focus on we talk about productivity a lot, but it's often personal. Like you need to have your habits in line. Like you need to be organized, right? We we leave it to just to the individual. The irony though of Peter Drucker calling for this is that he kind of accidentally created the problem because of his focus on autonomy. So we have this irony of like Drucker had pointed out the the promise of like knowledge work could be massively more productive. And it could generate massively more GDP. The reason why we're not doing that, though, is because he also taught us that, like, well, leave it up to the individuals to figure out how to do this. And the individuals can't by themselves make the revolution. So <laughs> Drucker is a really interesting, conflicting character in the story. The other aspect of, of this story that, that hit me is this idea of productivity across our economy. And we seem to, well, we're, we're slowing in our productivity gains, right? We had productivity, I think, of over 2% for a lot of the uh, second half of the 20th century. And now we're down around one or less than 1%. And it seems like we've squeezed the productivity out of manufacturing. Potentially, the next wind in our sails for productivity is this knowledge work. And if we want our children to have a higher quality of life than we have, there needs to be productivity gains in our economy. And so I'm kind of, I'm really excited about the potential here. There's going to be a lot of work, but I'm a big proponent of diving into it because the stakes are so high. Yeah, I'm optimistic as well, because the more you dive into the impacts of the way we work today in the office, the more you realize how astoundingly unproductive it is. I mean, it has now become standard in a lot of workplaces that you basically do no actual work during the entire workday. All you do is Zoom meetings and answer email. And then you try to the extent that you're able to between sleep and your kids to try to get some work done in the evening or in the early morning. I mean, this is an absurd state of affairs, right? This, you, you think this would be in like a, an Aldous Huxley novel or something. It'd be some sort of parody of like the bureaucratic state run to some absurd extreme or something, but it's how we're actually working. It is so astoundingly unproductive that I'm incredibly optimistic because imagine what's going to happen when we actually are able to tap that potential, right? I mean, it's not even like we're building cars using the craft method. It's like we're building cars with the craft method and we have the lights off to save on our electric bill and we're feeling around with our hands to try to find the parts. There's so much on the table right now. And I'm really beginning to feel this groundswell, especially coming out of the investor class and the CEO class of them waking up to this idea of, wow, we could be five to 10x more productive if we figured out how to actually work. And we didn't just plug everyone in email and said, because it's easy. And, and, and just stayed stuck there because someone raised their hand and said, yeah, but what if we miss a note from a client? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's not enough anymore. And, and so I think there's this awareness and we're going to have a huge productivity boom as we begin to move away from the hive mind. It's taken us a little bit longer than maybe it took in the car manufacturing just because of this autonomy trap. But I think we're freeing ourselves from this trap. This is the sense I'm getting. And I think it's going to, there's so much, there's so much power right now on the table being wasted with all these context shifts, all these context shifts. I mean, again, it's almost like to use another analogy that we were building cars in the Ford factory and we put all the parts at the top of like a really huge flight of stairs that people had to run up to, to get each part and run down and they get really tired and couldn't really work. We're doing that to our brain by making people check an inbox once every six minutes. It's an unforced error. 
that's making us terribly unproductive. But I'm with you. The other side of that glass is, oh man, what's going to happen when we stop doing that? Yeah. Well, in closing, what advice do you have for listeners that are in the hive mind right now? They are feeling overwhelmed. They're feeling frantic. They are going from Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting. They're trying to get their whatever work done that they're measured by or the value they add to their company is done at night or in between these other uh, activities of coordinating work. What what are a couple steps you could do? And I, I highly suggest reading the book. It's a great introduction, but what, what do you suggest people do to start to make that progress? You got to figure out the processes you're actually involved in. And like an easy way to do this is with your inbox. Take a day, every email you get, ask the question, what's the bigger process this is involved with? Oh, it's, it's part of answering clients' questions. Oh, it's part of producing reports, whatever, right? And list this out. Like you got to understand what are the things you do on a regular basis that you come back to again and again and again. Then you can, it's relentless. You just go through these one by one, start with the low-hanging fruit. How can I change how at least I participate or implement this process that's going to reduce unscheduled messages? And you make those changes. Then you move on to another. And then you move on to another. That's the way this builds up. Once you know that the goal is changing processes to reduce unscheduled messages, it's not about your inbox habits. It's not about your notifications. It's not about your subject line. It's not about how your colleagues are really bad at email and it makes you really mad. Processes re-engineering, process re-engineer, process re-engineer, bring down unscheduled messages, bring down unscheduled messages. It increments, it aggregates. Less unscheduled messages, less pressure to check the inbox. The work gets done better. Uh, Now you can upgrade more processes, less unscheduled messages, uh, even uh, less pressure to check your inbox, even more non-context switch work. You produce work better, you produce the work faster, and it it will begin the snowball. At some point, as this gets really good, you can bring it to your team and say, hey, I think we might want to do this as a team, but start with yourself, name the processes, know what you're trying to improve, and just start doing the work. You'll be surprised how quickly you begin to feel a difference in what work feels like, and it's all about getting away from these context shifts. That makes me think in process re-engineering, if we think of an unscheduled message, if we think of that as a defect, like we think about a defect in manufacturing, we should be designing our day to reduce those defects. And there's something called root cause analysis, right? In process redesign, where you look at the mm-hmm. defect and say, what was the cause? And that's what you're essentially doing, right? You're saying, what? why did I get this message and why was it coming in unscheduled? Is there a way I can redesign my work so that that doesn't happen? And if we can do that, then man, we'll have wide stretches of time to actually get the work done, which would be a blessing. <laughs> yeah. And if we have millions of people doing this, millions of minds thinking about this, the amount of innovative solutions that are going to emerge is going to be so much greater than if just one or two of us tries to sit down and come up with it all from scratch. It's why you know, I have examples in the book of what people have done, but more importantly, I'm just trying to point people towards what they need to do. Because I think when you're on the ground, you know your industry, you know your people, you do a few of these, Man, the innovation we're going to get once we have a million minds all thinking about different solutions is going to completely overhaul. It's going to be like a million different Henry Fords. It's going to be great. So I'm really excited about the potential here. Me too. And that's a great way to end our discussion. Cal, where can people find out more about what you do and what you're working on today and how to get better at this stuff? Well, I have a website, calnewport.com. So I write a weekly essay there. I've been doing that for like 15 years at this point. So that's a good starting place. I also have a podcast called Deep Questions where I answer questions from my readers about all of these type of issues. We get nitty gritty on the details of how to work better, how to live a deeper life, big think questions about technology. And so if you like this type of discussion, you'll probably like that podcast as well. 
Great. I, I will check it out. And I encourage everyone to. Cal, thank you for being on The Good Life. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate any effort to make our lives better. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.